warriors in their own words is brought to you by the honor project committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record this presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the united states armed forces In this special episode of Warriors in Their Own Words, we feature an interview with a German U-boat veteran from World War II. Rudi Töpfer graduated from the German Naval Academy and served as the chief engineering officer on submarines as they hunted for Allied convoys in the Atlantic Ocean. The submarine in those days was less than 2% of its active duty underwater. It was not a submarine as we call it now. It was more submersible ship, submersible boat, which could dive, but usual was on the surface. On the surface, it was three times as fast as underwater. On the surface, they, they, could, they could look out with binoculars to, to the horizon, that was about 10 times as far, and that was done by four posts with altogether eight, eight eyes. They could look all around, while when you are submerged, only one eye can look maybe four miles away. Sometimes even the, the periscope was under the waterline because for the chief engineering officer who is in charge of the drive underwater, and that was my job on board, Sometimes if you have rough seas, the boat is either thrown out of the water or it is, goes underneath the waves and the skipper cannot see until the, the chief engineering officer brings the boat slowly or as fast as possible, but slowly to the surface, so or to 10 meter uh, submerged, submerged, that is telescope depth. And then the skipper can see and attack, but he only sees with one eye in one direction. And it is very dangerous. He cannot see with that telescope what in the air is going on. For that, we have a different telescope, which was manned by another officer. And that could look uh, 90 degrees upwards. But still, you are very much handicapped underwater. You only go underwater when it is really necessary. When we spotted a convoy, and that was usual in those days during daytime, we saw the smoke of the convoys. And then we approached them closer till we saw the masts and the funnel but never that close that we saw their bridge, because when, they, when we saw their bridge, they were able to see us too. Naturally, it was much harder for them to spot a little tower of a submarine than we saw the bridge of a big, uh, big ship. We only kept position with them on parallel course and waited for dusk in the evening. Say that again, please. And we wait. We only kept position. We only kept position uh, till we had dusk. And at dusk, we closed in and went in position to 
make our attack. Now the enemy knew that and he made his big change in course on direction at that time during, during uh, the evening. But we stayed close to them and we usually did not lose them. And then we attack, attacked them. But the destroyers, they might, they tried to chase us away also during daytime. Sometimes they spotted us during daytime. You have to keep in mind at that time there was hardly any radar. The radar uh, which the enemies already had was not that good. And we didn't have it. We had only optical uh, possibilities to spot the uh, convoys. But as soon as we saw a destroyer approaching us, uh, chasing us away, we headed into the sea because a submarine cuts through the waves and does not lose much of its speed, while the destroyer loses lots of speed and cannot use his artillery because its artillery is always underwater. So we let the destroyer come closer and closer by that, we pulled him away from the uh, convoy so that he could not perform his guarding duty to the convoy. And other submarines had the chance to go into the convoy. And then we waited only for darkness because a destroyer did not chase, one destroyer anyway, did not chase a submarine during dark hours. It was too dangerous for him. He did not know what we would do. If he reached us before darkness, then we submerged. And in a circle, right or left, which he could not say at that time, the sonar only works for a ship when he, is, when he stops his engine. And a destroyer, one destroyer alone wouldn't do that. And one destroyer alone was not a, a, a risk or was not a danger to a submarine. As soon as there were two destroyers, then it was dangerous, very dangerous for a submarine because the one stopped his engines, used the sonar and spotted their, exactly the distance and the direction of the submerged submarine and gave the other destroyer the sign when to drop, uh, how to run over that, that area and when to drop the depth charges. And that was kind of dangerous and, and deadly sometimes. In the beginning of the war and in the first two or three years, it was not that one because we dived deeper than we ourselves knew that we could dive. And the enemy had set his depth charges to the depths what he knew about his submarines, how deep they could dive. And that meant that all the depth charges exploded at the top of us or maybe on the side. They caused a lot of noise and shaking and the light went out sometimes, but they were not deadly. A depth charge is only deadly when it explodes underneath the keel of a submarine. Then it breaks the keel and the submarine is finished. On October 14, 1939, the German submarine U-47, under the command of Gunther Preen, sank the battleship HMS Royal Oak in Scapa Flow, Scotland. Do you remember the, um, 
the, the U-boat attack at Scapa Yeah, that was in the very beginning, in fact, in the first month of the war. Okay. I think it was in October. This is the area where they scuttled the German fleet after World yeah, War Yeah, right. And when you heard the news about what Preen had done, what, what did that bolster morale? Oh, yes, that was a big success to go into the main base, the biggest base of the enemy and <laughs> torpedo uh, uh, a ship there. In fact, there were four uh, men of wars, big ones, torpedoed, but only on one torpedo uh, worked and exploded. And with the other three, they heard the bump of the torpedo hitting the side of the uh, men of war, but they didn't explode. The success of Prim could have been four times as much as it was if our torpedoes at that time would have functioned correctly. Later on, we found out a couple of three months later, they worked excellently in the Baltic Sea where they were tested. But up there on the Orkneys, north of, of Scotland, in the Scapa Flow area, they could not work as good as they worked in the Baltic Sea because they were, the pistol was magnetically fired, that fired magnetically. And the magnetic conditions in north of Scotland are different than in the Baltic Sea. But we found out about that then it was corrected, but that was too late. But nonetheless, what he did was a, a ballsy thing to do. It was un unbelievable. That is, mo that's more than bravery. He was uh, a captain of uh, of the merchant marine, and by the end, by the beginning of the war, uh, a little bit before the war, he was uh, taken over by the navy, and uh, was a skipper of a submarine, and achieved this uh, success. And uh, two of his, uh, exe the executive officer and the, ne the next one, the, the other officer, they both became very famous and highly decorated submarine skippers later on. What, in your estimation, did the convoys do to try to, to throw you guys off course? The convoys were consisted of about 40, 50, 30 ships, and they usually drove in four lines, surrounded by destroyers, one in front always, and because the destroyer had a much higher speed than the convoy. The convoy, the, the mishap of a convoy is always that they have to regulate their speed according to the slowest of their ships. And that brought them sometimes down to eight miles an hour. And that is pretty slow. But the, the advantage which the destroyers took, they could, in front of the convoy, they could go uh, sideways and make sure that no submarine, what we very often did, speeded up in front of the convoy and figured it out that they would be there at about nightfall, and then they s waited for the convoy and sunk into the oncoming convoy and shot in both directions with a heck torpedo as well as the front torpedoes and uh, were pretty successful. Now a destroyer which fanned in front back and forth 
made it very hard for the German submarines to do something like that. Besides, there were always one destroyer on each side, or frigate, frigate or corvette, and one or two in the rear. Those ones in the rear, they mainly had the purpose to guard ships which were hit by torpedoes but not yet sunk. They took over the crews or they helped the ship and decided if it should be sunk or not. But the main job was always a front destroyer and he was the most dangerous for our submarines. Uh, naturally, the torpedoes which we shot were different kinds of torpedoes. A torpedo is a ship, a submarine by itself. It's very expensive. And you had to be very careful to, with the torpedoes. We could not shoot as wild as, for example, as Americans. They shot a lot of torpedoes which were not necessary. We, in our case, it was always a saying, a, a torpedo, a ship, which could not always be accomplished. But we very often even saved torpedoes and finished up a ship by artillery in the beginning of the war. A torpedo runs, was preset, they have gyros inside, and they were preset for the distance, for the speed, for the depth, and they could even make an angle. After a certain mileage, they could make an angle so that they could hit a target broadside. We could shoot at ships which were oncoming or which were already gone. And we shoot after them and preset angle made still hit on the broadside of the ship. Now, the better way of doing it was to use magnetic pistols. Then we set the depths so that they underrun a ship. They were set deeper than the ship is. But they had a magnetic pistol which, which caused the explosion as soon as a magnet spotted a metal above them. And they were in so far better as when they exploded, they broke the keel of that ship. And that was a dead thing to, that the ship was lost. Also, it was easier to shoot a torpedo with a deeper depth, because there's calmer water, the uh, waters. The waters are calmer. And if you shoot a torpedo so that it hits broadside at the, the level of the seawater, then if there are waves, the torpedo is sometimes thrown out of the water, and then it runs haywire. On the other hand, if it still hits, then the surface and comes underneath, it goes down to the ground and does not level up to what it was set to. So the magnetic torpedoes, they were very advantageous. Describe Admiral Dönitz and his impact on the U-boat force, or his impact maybe on you. What, 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 what can you tell us about the man? He was an excellent officer, alone his appearance and the way he conducted himself was marvelous, was without any 
doubt uh, one of a real officer. He used to be a skipper of a submarine during World War I in the Mediterranean, where he was uh, kind of successful. And then later on in the Second World War, he took the over the command of the submarine forces and in the end of the war even the command of the whole navy and in the very end he was even the successor of Hitler. Uh, how did that carry down to the submariner, the, the basic? We all liked him very much because he had a very rough job and task on his shoulders and as the war later on developed with the mishaps, he had to be a little bit rough on us because not everything went smooth. And uh, there were often where there also discrepancies between us and them and him, but that happens in every business, in every private enterprise. If you want to reach your goals as the leader, as the boss, you have to shake up once in a while the crew or the skipper or the officers. And that happened. How did uh, Dernitz's wolf pack tactics work? That was in a development of the later years in the war. Let's say in the 1942. Because for a wolf pack you have to have available several boats. The wolf pack uh, tactic was that we were sent into the Atlantic. The Atlantic is vast, it's a vast territory. And each of the boats, when we were out, let's say 10, 10, 12 boats, later on 15 boats, had a square to go up and down. With lowest speed, one propeller, only two or three miles speed, uh, 12 hours south and the same distance 12 hours north. And the next square with the next boat did the same thing. By that, we made sure that no convoy could slip through. And when one of the boats got connection with a convoy, then it was not permitted to attack. But it gave this information to headquarters in Paris, or later on in a little lot in, in France, where the headquarters of submarine was. And they ordered then the other boats to that area, to that position. And as soon as the second boat showed up, then the second boat took over, holding the position with the convoy, and the first one was ready to attack. And then in the course of the time, more and more boats came, and one was always pointed out and ordered as keeping position, not to attack, so that the convoy would not get lost. Because a convoy made, regardless if it was attacked or not, very drastic uh, changes, uh, course changes. And that was the Wolfpack's tactics. So the idea is to get everybody together at once for the attack? Take no, as soon as the second one was in, he was already permitted to attack. And then the third or fourth one came later, and then they were, but one had to keep the position, was not permitted to attack. Because those ones who attacked, 
they were not always right away successful. They were, cha they were chased away from the destroyers. Or they lost their position because the convoy made a drastic uh, change of course. And uh, they had to submerge. And by that, that boat lost the connection with the uh, convoy, while the other boat, which did not connect, stayed with the convoy. The German Navy modified large U-boats to be used to resupply other U-boats. These vessels were known as milk cows. The milk cows, how were they used? Were they effective? Yeah, they were very effective, but only for the first half of the war. They were derived from the seven sea boats, but much larger. I think they got the, the type 14. And their purpose was not to attack. They carried only two torpedoes, which they were told not a, never to use, only if somebody was real there and it was a safe thing to sink something. But they were much too valuable because several other submarines out there in the Atlantic, they depended on them. And I had was twice supplied by milk cows uh, and with fuel, diesel fuel, we did not need any torpedoes, but with uh, food, food stuff, that was the main thing. And we stayed, uh, usually we stayed only eight weeks in the Atlantic because we had no bases. Uh, the, for the Americans it was easy in Pacific. The submarines had bases all over the place. We had none. So our milk cows were, in a way, our bases. But then later on, with the uh, long flying, uh, f flying fortresses, the Sunderland and well, by the English, and uh, what was the American? The B-24. Yeah, yeah, the, the six-engine, the big ones. They flew for such a long time and kept the submarines under the surface, and when they spotted, uh, they, they could reach these milk house destinations. Naturally, wherever we were supplied by the milk house, that was far out of the reach of uh, airplanes. But when the war went on, the airplanes of the enemies, they reached farther and farther, and that was the end of the milk house. During the early years of the war, the U-boats enjoyed tremendous success. These days were known as the happy times. The sinkings in the summer of 1940 and, and again in 1942 were impressive. Um, describe the U-boat's happy time. Yeah, these were two happy times, 39 and 40. As I said, with, uh, with only 10 boats, we had a tremendous success in uh, sinking tonnage. And then in, later on in 42, that was what is here called now, what we called Paukenschlag, or here it is called Drumbeat. It's a book is written about it. That was unbelievable. I think the United States population doesn't know what happened because the Navy was sleeping. The U.S. Navy was 
they, they declared war, or they were in a war, and they did not declare, but they were in the war by the Japanese and by that also with the Germans. They were at, in a shooting war with the Germans already for a year because they protected the English convoys, which was against the Geneva Agreements. And they attacked our submarines, which was also against the, the agreements. And then when it came to a shooting war, when the war was on in 42, after Pearl Harbor, we found the enemy who was sleeping. Within, I don't know how many months, the, the Americans lost more than 400 ships at the eastern coastline. 400 ships, which were mainly unprotected. And they had the, the ships, but they didn't know what to do with them. It's unbelievable. U-boats were sinking Allied vessels within sight of the east coast of the United States. For the American coastline, they, they, they were the 900 and 1,200 ton boats set for attacking those ships. What, what did you see? Did you see American headlights? Or yeah, what? I saw only the cars driving with the, the headlights still on. Some of them were dimmed, but they didn't expect us. They could not, nobody in the world, all the, the skilled people of the Navy and of the submarine forces, they could not imagine that the Germans could accomplish to come to the, cross the whole Atlantic, fight there, and still have enough fuel to go back. But these boats, which were sent as soon as the war started against the United States, they were all on, its, on their own. And they were so much filled up with fuel that they could not submerge during the first two days. Because diesel fuel is lighter than seawater, quite a bit. And since our bunkers, the fuel bunkers, were open on the, on the lower sides, and whatever diesel fuel we consumed was replaced by seawater which floated from the, under, from the lower side into the bunkers. That seawater did not mix with the fuel because fuel is only 0.8 specific weight while seawater is 1.4 spe specific weight. So we had so much fuel in those boats that they could go cross Atlantic sink the ships over there for a week or two and still came back attacking here and there on their way back also uh, reached uh, the bases in, in France. What could a U-boat crew expect during the happy times to come home to? Did they have a band or flowers? Or oh yes, they, uh, in the first two, three years well, we had bands and the but the crews were mainly interested in the mail. There could have been the most beautiful nurses and girls uh, as receptionists at the uh, harbors. The main thing was a mail. We wanted to have the, the letters, which accumulated over the six, eight, ten, twelve weeks. But when we went out of the, uh, went on patrol, there were no bands. 
because otherwise the French underground would have reported that to the Allies that a boat went out in the in the Biscay, Bay of Biscay. So that was made in silence, usually in the evening hours, and so that the darkness protected us for a while from being spotted by the underground. Do you remember anything about hearing about the HMS Ark Royal? Yeah. The aircraft carrier. The reason is uh, we had this other fellow talk about it, but um, I guess it was just very significant, even though it was early in the war, and a lot of people don't think it was that big a deal. The fact is a U-boat sunk a large aircraft carrier. They tried to do it before, and, and the Ark Royal got away. But just the whole concept of a U-boat taking out a big capital ship. Oh, yes. I mean, for, for in, in submarine circles, I am, for example, now a, a member of the U.S. Submarine Veterans of World War II an uh, associate member. And we meet every week. And there they have the saying, for a submarine there are only two kinds of ships, submarines and targets. And that's what we had too. Not the saying, but that's the way we... A submarine, when they hear that a new uh, carrier is commissioned, then we always call it, that is a U-Boot Skipper's Delight. Still, when we had the choice to sink in, during the war, a man of war or a trader and a merchantman, we always chose the, the trader because the man of war, not the, the merchant ship, was valuable to be sunk because the cargo was more important than the big uh, uh, warship, man of war, because the cargo supplied the communists with weapons and ammunition and uh, food, what they needed. And our army had a hard time uh, to, to fight the, the Russians, who were supported and supplied by the United States. That's why we always choose rather to torpedo merchantmen than men of war. What types of things did the officers and crew do while uh, you were under attack? Each had his station and there was no relief. If somebody was sick or was wounded, Somebody else had to do two jobs. We had 48 crew members aboard our, our boat. And whenever there was an alert, then everybody knew exactly what to do. And nobody else, there was no, no spare person on board. And the job of the skipper was naturally in the tower. He had to wait till I, as a chief engineering officer, bought the brought the boat up to periscope depths, which was 10 meters or 30 feet. And then he had uh, round, uh, looked around once, and then he focused on the target, which was given to him by the sonar operator from the uh, wireless operating room. And then we steered in that direction under his command. But we did that as I mentioned already, only 
when a surface attack was no more possible. The surface of, uh, attack of a submarine is much more uh, successful than a submerged one. Because as soon as you shoot a torpedo, the preparations for shooting the, uh, take quite a while and changing the weight of the boat. When, you, when the skipper gave the command, the order to ready tube number one, that means the tube number one had to be floated. Water came in, which already changed the weight of the boat. And I had to go, I had to correct that while we were still on the surface, because I had to establish the correct weight in the case that we had to submerge. So I knew exactly how much I had to, what I had to eject when the one tube was flooded. And as soon as a, a torpedo was fired, was pushed by a piston out of the tube, the piston was pushed back by the water pressure from the outside. And then, in order to submerge, which usually came after we fired a shot, and oh, or when we knew that a destroyer uh, chased us, the boat's front doors, watertight, had to be closed. But we had the water in. The boat was heavier by the weight of a full uh, torpedo tube. We had to eject that water and trim it also, because it was heavy in the front. So we had to bring water from the front to the rear to establish a balance, all still on the surface, where it didn't matter if you ever had a torpedo shot or not. But it was a big uh, thing as soon as you submerged. If you didn't do that, your submarine was was done, because you cannot balance such tremendous amounts of water uh, when you are under the, under the surface. When the crew was under attack, what, what tactics did the submarine employ to, to get away from depth charge attacks? We tried to outmaneuver the enemy by doing circles. But that did not always work, because when there were two destroyers up there, then it was almost impossible. We only could wait and hope that they lose us, which quite often happened, and then we were lucky. But when there were two, then one stopped and listened, and the other one ran over us and dropped the depth charges. And you can hear the splash of the depth charges when they hit the surface. And then we counted the seconds, and then you heard the, the detonation, the explosion. And as long as they were above us or sideways, as I said already, they were not, it was not too, it was not dangerous or deadly, but it was a terrible feeling. And the main thing is when you are underwater and have to undergo a depth charge that you keep the crew and yourself and everybody busy. Give orders, not idiotic orders, but 
orders which does not necessarily have to make sense, only to keep them busy, to do this and that, lay uh, hoses and pump water from there to there, and uh, uh, but everything has to be silently. The worst what you can do is stand there, looking upwards, listening, and waiting for the next step charge. That drives everybody crazy. But if you are busy, then you lose this uh, sensation that, you, that, that it hits your nerves. You have something to do and that takes you occupied. And then never show that you are afraid because everybody is afraid, including the, the skipper. But if you can, even tell a joke but not so idiotic that they say uh, he is playing with our lives. It, you have to be a judge of what you say. That is a way, uh, but in, it has, it's an endurance game. But did you dive, when you sense that the depth charges were higher, did you constantly try to dive deeper? Or? Yeah, we can only dive to a certain depth. Our boats was, were laid out, as well as the enemy uh, submarines, for 80 meters. That's only about 240 feet. There was a red mark. But we found out very soon that we could dive much deeper. We usually, whenever the, we were chased and had to expect a depth charge, had, uh, we uh, tried to reach 150 meters, 450 feet about. There we were pretty safe because we knew that the enemy had his step shots set higher than that. And if he would have set them lower, let's say 200, then the pressure, the water pressure down there is so tremendous that a depth charge cannot do much harm. It only explodes in the direction of the least resistance and that is straight upwards. Hardly anything sideways, nothing uh, lower. And when we reached 150 meters, then we were in a way safe. Then it was a matter how long he chased us. But we went uh, with one propeller on the electric machines, electric motors, slow speed, so only that we had rudder action. Because you cannot keep a boat on one, in one depth Infinitively. A boat either comes up or it goes down. One drop of water too much brings it down. One more drop of water in the regular in the regulation tanks too much brings it brings it up. So you equalize that by dynamically bringing the boat with a rudder to that depth which you want to have. And we wanted to have it, I wanted to have it on 150. Skipper told me 150, so I said 150. And we brought to that. But all of a sudden, I saw the boat went down and down and down. My goodness, how come? And we went down to 213 meters, which is almost 700 feet. And nobody knows how much deeper you can go, because those ones who reached deeper depths, they cannot tell anymore. They, are, they, are, they were killed, they were pressed together. And I only can explain it that we that I hit a different layer 
of salt, a different, different salt layer, different specific weight in the ocean that the boat sang. And then I brought it up. I asked the skipper right away for more revolutions to bring the boat dynamically high to 150. But you cannot make that too long because the, the propellers, when they go higher speed, they make noise. And the, e, uh, the electric motors at the higher end make also a noise which can be spotted by the enemy sonar. But then everything went well and we stayed on 150 and had to undergo depth charge. I don't know how many, but uh, in a way <laughs> it gets routine. <laughs> you cannot do a thing about it. You have, uh, at that moment you wished you were in the infantry or in the army, where you have at least your foxhole. You can do something, you can jump here and there. And when you see that uh, there a grenade hits and somebody fell and this was killed in action, you are ha happy that, uh, you are grateful that it didn't happen to you and you can jump somewhere else. But in a submarine, they are all heroes or cowards. There is no escape. You are there and that's it. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Sometimes sent oil and clothing to the surface to fake their own sinking. Yeah. Did you, did you ever do that? Yeah. And as I remember that little thing, it was about like a grenade, such a container, was called puck, 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 or something like that. And we had an extra ejection type that was after, that was in the middle of the war. In the beginning, we didn't have the, we didn't have to have that. But we had to have it when we were chased by more than one destroyer. Because every destroyer f doesn't feel very comfortable when he chases a submarine. He wants to get it, to have it done over, especially in the dark, uh, so that he can return to his uh, convoy. But in order to uh, go back to his convoy, he has to have the assurance mission accomplished. And we helped him in that. We ejected this thing, and that spread, or we ejected even through the torpedo tubes, old clothes and oil and, and uh, garbage, uh, which came to the surface, and that gave them the, uh, the indication that boat is done. But we had another thing too, and now comes this puck in. That had a chemical inside, and that prevented the radar of the enemy 
from spotting our hull. Like chaff in an airplane. Yeah, like, like the airplane, there is a chaff of the, the airplanes. We had that too and that worked. You never can tell, did it work or did it not work? For us, it was the main thing that the enemy lost interest on us. That's what we were praying for. He said, we hope that is the last run on us. And uh, then we could uh, slowly come up and uh, take new air in the boat, what we really needed. We needed to go to the surface. And nowadays, everything is different. Nowadays, you can dive much deeper than we could, and you are much faster under the water. We came out with a Type 21, which was came too late. If that would have come out a little bit earlier, or if the war would have lasted half a year longer, we could have still changed the Battle of the Atlantic with that 21 boat, which was a big one. And now all the boats of all navies, they are types of that what the Germans had in the end of the war. Because those were faster underwater than on the surface. They had provisions that they could stay underwater much longer than the other ones. And they had a shape, which is exactly the shape of the present day's ones. And if we would have come out, as I said, with those ones earlier, we could have still turned around the battle in the Atlantic. But that was too late. In regard to the protection through the air for the submarines, we had from in the Navy officers who were uh, ordered to the Air Force. And that was already before the war. And several of my classmates also wore the Air Force uniform, but they were Navy officers. And they flew special planes which were Navy planes. But the Luftwaffe under Göring, they were against that. Göring came out with that saying, everything what has wings is under my control. So the Navy who wanted to have their special planes were not permitted to have that. And Raider lose, lost out against Göring and Hitler decided in favor of Göring and against the Navy and Raider. If we would have had planes which were manned by Navy officers who knew what the desires and the necessities for the Navy and especially for the submarines were, then the outcome of the war would have been also a different one. Finally, in the end, Göring gave in, but that was too late. Then we had no more the advantage of having a good air protection for our submarines. So tell, let the audience know just how close did you come to winning the war in the Atlantic? Because they say that of all the German fronts, the battle for the Atlantic was the closest that the Germans came to an all-out total victory. That but is... Uh, in, in, in what way? Um, 
that is even proven by Churchill. Churchill himself said, was about to give in. And he was a great man because he kept on going. And we had the successes against the English, English uh, supply was so great. Even it was about only 10% of all the tonnage which came to the which were supposed to go to England, only 10% was sunk. But these 10% were so important for the uh, English uh, country and the in English population that the 90% which came in were not sufficient. In the long run, they run the country down. So how close did they come? Radar was the thing which broke the advantages of the German submarines. With the radar being on the English side, faster and earlier uh, developed and invented than on the German side, that, that uh, advantage could not be uh, reached by the Germans anymore. If radar would not have been invented, the Germans would have won the submarine war. This is war by the submarines. How about, um, could you hear when, they, when the destroyers were sending out their sonar? Could you yeah, hear the yeah, things? Yeah. Tell, us, tell, us, tell us that you could hear that and, and or how did that work? Uh, <clears throat> when you were submerged, everything is silent. That's wonderful, good for the nerves as well. And then you heard the ping, which came, ping, 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 ping. And then it came over your boat and had a different sound. And when you heard that this ping, ping, ping got a different sound, it was on your boat, then you knew that the English spotted you. But if that ping, ping, ping went only through the ocean and did not change its sound, did not hit an object, then you were lucky. They did not spot you. But that goes on your nerves. Oh, gee, I remember that. Well, I'll save the best one for last. What, what, were, the, uh, what were the conditions of life? What did you do, uh, and, and maybe what did you do to, to, for enjoyment or for fun? The life on a submarine, eight or 12 weeks out there without a tree, without land, without seeing other people, only those ones were, was mainly boring. Because days and sometimes weeks on end, nothing happened. If something happened, then everything was concentrated. But during those lonely, lonesome times where you went only watch, we changed the watch time anyway from a, a four hour schedule in the engine room, we changed it to six hours uh, watch time, which was better for the crew. And the, the crew lay around, there were not enough berths for everybody to sleep at the same time. Only the skipper and I, we had each a berth for our own. Even the Executive officer had to 
share a berth with the, the other officers. Or the petty officers. Two petty officers had one berth. And the same with the men. But that was not too bad because we were trained on the little boats, on the 250-ton boats, where the uh, room was much more confined than on the 750 and 900 boats which we had. Uh, there we felt almost like kings, but we had to stay much longer on, on these boats. We had radio, we listened to the radio, also to foreign, foreign radio stations. We heard the German news, we heard the English news, we heard the Canadian, the uh, US news. Mainly we heard music. And the jazz music of the United States was, uh, that, was, uh, that was preference by the crew. I myself liked the classic music much better. But uh, then we played games. We uh, talked, we wrote. Everybody had to do his duty. I mean, I had a lot of to calculating to, to cal and, and uh, write the day's happenings for the, for the engine, whatever everything in the, happened in the engine room. So you kept yourself busy, but it was mainly boring. In the southern Atlantic, uh, close to the equator, then it was nicer. It was hot, um, unbearable hot. Sometimes we didn't have air conditioning in those days on the submarines. But we were permitted to go on the, uh, on the deck and take a swim even. One was always there with a machine gun to chase high uh, sharks away in case sharks showed up. But in the North Atlantic, where we always had a chopping, cold sea, it was boring. We waited for the meals. The meals were sufficient. But you could not write any letters because they had to wait eight weeks till you could put them in the mail mailbox. You didn't receive any letters. You read books over and over again. You could keep yourself busy, some of them, they wrote even poems, and some of them wrote, wrote books. I myself made some sketches, not that I wrote a whole book, but I brought down my aphorism, my thoughts, and that kept you busy and killed the time. Killing the time was, that was a word for staying on patrol. The question came once up, if we had a Hitler picture or a Dönes picture in our boat. No, we didn't have it. We neither missed it nor were we ordered to have one. Now afterwards it sounds to be real funny because I see here in, in all military things always the president's picture and the colors and the, the uh, flags and all that. Uh, we didn't have that. By the way, the flags. You have to keep in mind, I lived under and pledged allegiance to six different flags and to the governments for which they stood in my lifetime. 
That means I look at everything. There is no, you never reach the truth. But you can get closer to the truth by looking from different angles. I always had to look from six different angles out of my experience, and I still do that. And by that you get closer to the truth than if you only look from your one only patriotic angle. After the war, Rudy Tupfer moved to the United States. He worked for Hughes Aircraft for 30 years and became a leader in the Elks Lodge in Masons. He was also an associate member of U.S. submarine veterans of World War II. He passed away in 2012 at the age of 95. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.